Good morning. Hey, if, uh, if we haven't yet met, my name is Amanda Davison. Uh, my family attends Life Church. Uh, we usually sit over in this area, which does matter here, because if you sit over here, we may never cross paths. So feel free to make your way over sometime so we can meet. Uh, my background is in counseling. I was a psychology professor for a number of years, and then I was on staff at the NAS Church here in town, helped them with assimilations, getting people connected, kind of figuring out what does it look like to follow Jesus. Uh, and now my full-time role, I'm the founder and director of A Wife Like Me. Uh, we help wives walk out wifehood in a Christ-centered way because who here knows marriage is awesome and it can be real hard also. So we, uh, our main goal is to really build healthy, strong marriages through Jesus. Uh, our family has only lived in Fergus Falls for about 10 years. Prior to living here, we lived in Minneapolis for about 10 years. That is until my in-laws came to us one holiday and they said, hey, if there's any chance at all that you think you might wanna come home and farm, you probably need to tell us soon. And so as soon as they said that, I kind of got excited because I was like, farming? That sounds so cool. <laughs> In my head, I thought farm life sounded like super just like slow and simple. And I don't know, I thought there's snow on the ground all, the, like all winter. So I was like, they can't do much. So we're probably gonna spend a lot of time together. And I had all these ideas literally knew nothing about farming whatsoever. Uh, every supermarket I have ever been in uh, prior to that time, not once, not even a little, did the thought cross my mind, huh, I wonder where this all came from. <laughs> like, not, even, not a, even a little. So here we are, though. My husband eventually was like, yeah, I think this would be a good idea. So we move back home to the family farm, and uh, we moved back home soon after we had our second kiddo, and harvest season was just about to start, uh, which meant absolutely nothing to me. But we uh, soon found out, I soon found out, I found myself, rather, with a three-year-old, a colicky newborn baby, and my husband, who is gone all the day and night long. And I was not doing well at all. Uh, in fact, things had just sort of been leading up to this point in my life. My entire life, I had sort of just felt like I was never good enough for anyone. I felt like no matter how hard people tried to love me, uh, it just wasn't enough. I, I ached for a deep like, love that I just hadn't experienced. And I had tried all my life looking for something or someone that would fill that, and I hadn't found it. Finally, I'd met my husband, who's an amazing man, loved the Lord, but as hard as he tried to love me, and he loved me so well, uh, it just wasn't enough. And so one day, uh, I ended up taking our two kids, and I left. I had had enough. Um, I just was so frustrated that I thought my marriage, I thought my life would look different, and I uh, didn't make it very far. I went across the county road uh, to our grain thing. What, I still don't know exactly what it's called, elevator or bin or something. And I parked there, and I just had it out with God. And um, I didn't have a relationship with him, but I had been in church my entire life, and I thought, 
Maybe he, maybe he could do something about this situation. I was convinced that my circumstances were a direct result of my insignificance. And when we find ourselves in situations or in seasons that look nothing like we thought they would or it would, what do we do? This morning, I'm excited. We are uh, continuing our journey in the Bible. We turn here each Sunday when you're with us um, because as Christians, as followers of Jesus, it is our guide, it is truth, it is the greatest love story of all time. And for those that don't know, the Bible is broken down into 66 different books. And those books are divided into the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the Old Testament really highlights how people are born into sin and cannot rescue themselves. And the New Testament highlights God's plan to rescue his people through his son, Jesus. So this morning, we've, uh, we're continuing our journey in the book of Ruth, and the book of Ruth is in the Old Testament. And there are two main characters in the book of Ruth, and in order for us to fully understand the text that we just read together this morning, and what we're diving into, we have to fully understand who Naomi and Ruth are. So Naomi, up until this point in scripture, in the book of Ruth, Naomi's had a pretty good life. She's married, and at this time in scripture, to be married is to be, in every sense of the word, protected. It, it really means that you are financially and socially taken care of. You really don't have any worries. So Naomi's doing well, her, her family loves the Lord, they're following God, uh, and they have two kids. But then an extreme shortage of food comes and Naomi's husband takes their family over to Moab, a nation with a bad reputation. And they are living there, Naomi's two sons, they grow up, they get married to Moabite women, women with a bad reputation. And soon after they get married, Naomi finds herself without her husband, her husband passes away. And again, for a woman without a husband, this is, this is an extremely difficult place to find yourself. She would be in extreme poverty and marginalized at this time in scripture. Her only hope was, would be, a widow would, would be that she would have sons to take care of her land, to farm the land and provide financially for her. But soon after, uh, Naomi's husband dies, her two sons also die. And so Naomi finds herself in such a vulnerable position, and unfortunately we know in scripture that widows, without again any sons, without anyone to help, were victimized. Exodus chapter 22, verse 23 and 24 says, do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. If you do, and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. Isaiah chapter one, verse 23, your rulers are rebels, partners with thieves. They all love bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. Isaiah chapter 10, verse two, to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. It's a well-known fact that to be without a, husband's, a husband and sons was to be no longer useful. 
Outside of Naomi's daughter-in-law, Ruth, a Moabite woman with a reputation, Naomi has nothing. Naomi's life looks nothing like she expected it would look. So it's no wonder, if you've been with us for a few weeks, it's no wonder why back in chapter one, why Naomi renames herself in verse 20. She says, don't call me Naomi. She responded, instead call me Mara, for the Almighty has made life very bitter for me. And she says this because Naomi looked at her circumstances, at her situation, and she said, well, based on this, I'm not very useful. (laughs) I'm not worth much. If we're not careful, we can start to believe that our circumstances somehow define our significance. We can even form our identity around this. But right here in the text, while Naomi has declared herself bitter, something else is going on. Remember, Ruth is a Moabite woman. And Moabite women have a reputation, and they have a reputation because Moabites worshipped little false gods. They did not worship God. They worshiped their own gods. They did what they wanted, when they wanted, how they wanted. And also, Moabite women had a reputation for, um, for tempting other people to worship their false gods. In scripture, Moabites were cursed people. They were never to be allowed into the land of Bethlehem. And Israelites were told to never even offer a drink of water to Moabites if they were thirsty. And yet this is where we see Ruth. She's a Moabite woman in the foreign land of Bethlehem with people who despise women like her. We know that once Ruth and Naomi arrive in Bethlehem, Ruth goes out into the fields to begin working the land. This is the system God had put in place for the poor. After the farmers had gone through the field, um, the poor could go in, the widows could go in and glean or gather um, the rest of what, what the farmers have left behind. And so Ruth goes out and she does this. And we learned last week that she meets a man named Boaz. Boaz is so kind. She happened to be farming and gleaning and gathering in his field. And Boaz treats her so well. He invites Ruth to come and eat with him and his workers. He tells his men to not bother Ruth. And he also tells his men to drop extra barley for Ruth to be able to pick up. So, so kind. And right away in verse 17, we see what Ruth, uh, how, how she responds to the kindness of Boaz. It says, so Ruth gathered barley there all day, and when she beat out the grain that evening, it filled an entire basket. She gathered barley there all day, beat it out, and it filled an entire basket. We could easily skip past this, and I'm not going to lie, I totally did when I first read this. But we need to look at it, because we, we need to remember that Ruth not only is gleaning or gathering, picking up what's been left over, Boaz has told his men to drop extra, which we think it, it is so kind, it is. But it, it adds so much work to actually what Ruth has to pick up. 
So here she is, she's gleaning in the fields. I think we have a picture, hopefully, um, gleaning of gathering the barley up from the fields, and it's a lot of work. So she gathers and gleans all the barley. Then, after she gathers and gleans the barley, it has to be hauled all the way, carried all the way over to the threshing floor. You guys, I'm not going to lie, I totally just learned what this was a couple weeks ago, but she gathers it, she has to haul it all the way over to the threshing floor. Sounds really uh, intricate. It's not. It's like an area that's designated to thresh. And threshing, you can do it a few different ways. You can take a stick and beat the uh, barley stalk until the barley falls off of the stalk. Or you can just take the stalks of barley and, and beat the barley until, or the stalks until the barley falls off. So you would have to thresh all the barley stalks to get the barley off the stalk, okay? You have to remove the stalks then from the barley, and then you can winnow the barley. Winnowing is when you separate the chaff, the outside covering of the barley, from the barley. And you can do this in a few ways. You can toss it up in the air and the breeze just blows the chaff away. Or you can use baskets and dump it and dump it. But you have to, the whole point, you have to do this a lot. And it takes a really long time. Why does this matter? Because it's not fun work. This is so simple. Her work was probably unseen by anyone. It's so ordinary. And I can't help but wonder if Ruth ever questioned whether what she was doing really even mattered. Today, we live in a celebrity-saturated kind of culture. Uh, in a recent survey of 3,000 American kids, age 8 to 12, they could choose which profession they wanted to be. You could, be, uh, you could choose an astronaut, professional athlete, doctor, teacher, police officer. Do you want to know the number one chosen profession of 8 to 12-year-olds in America? A YouTuber. Yeah. A YouTuber. I, I think it's because uh, they are... Maybe we want to be known. They want to be known. We think that to be important is to make a big impact and for others to take note. Even in the Christian world we do this. We have this sort of celebrity mentality where we think that to have a big kingdom impact is to have a platform. To make a big difference in the church is to have maybe a leadership position in the church or be on staff at a church. But overall, this is not what we see in scripture and it is not what we see in this passage this morning. In the verses we're looking at today, simply verses 17 through 23 in chapter two, we see 10 ordinary actions of Ruth that do not fit with, within today's picture of glamor or success. We see that Ruth gleaned, she threshed, she carried, she gathered, she brought, she gave, she ate, she told, she stayed, 
she lived. So ordinary. This is not Ruth's dream job, and she never thought her life would look like this. Yet, right here, Ruth does what only she knows to do. She stays faithful with the ordinary. And while she's doing this, she has no idea how God was going to use it. So she just works, and here she comes, carrying back this big basket of barley, all the barley she's gleaned that day. And some translations call it an ephah, and um, I had to Google that because, duh, what's an ephah? And an ephah, I learned, is an ancient Hebrew unit of dry measure equal to one-tenth a homer. Still, (laughs) thanks Google, no clue. So I googled, what is a homer? And I found out that a tenth of a, a, tenth of a homer, oh, someone smart over here knows. I could have I texted. Um, but a tenth of a homer is equal to 22 liters. So, so then I was like, I asked my super smart, very good looking husband, you know, like, hey babe, um, you're a farmer, so tell me, what, how much does 22 liters of dry grain weigh? because I wanted to know how much she was carrying back, and he said about 48.5 pounds, almost 50 pounds. That would have been in, in, in ancient times enough to feed Ruth and Naomi for at least 10 days. It would have been, it was, two weeks of income in one day. Today it'd be like making $2,000 in a day. So here comes little old Ruth. I don't know if she's little, but in my head she is because it makes the story better. Here she comes. She's carrying 50 pounds of barley all the way back to Naomi. And in verse 18, it says she carried it back all the way to town, showed it to her mother-in-law, Naomi. Ruth also gave her the roasted grain that was left over from her meal because why not? It's just ordinary. Naomi responds in verse 19 saying, where did you gather all this grain today? Where did you work? May the Lord bless the one who helped you. Notice Naomi does not praise Ruth for her hard work, which she totally could have and did deserve. But she didn't because Naomi took one look at the amount of barley that Ruth had and she knew that there's no way Ruth's hard work alone could have been the explanation for it. She knew someone else had something to do with it. And this is what happens in the ordinary. Pastor J.D. Greer says that we often think of great Christianity as revealing itself in grand sacrifices and heroic missionary stories, and it does. But heroic Christianity isn't born on the mission field. It's born in the small areas of life. The best testimony to the gospel happens in the mundane. Our everyday obedience is our best witness. Nothing glamorous, nothing seen, ordinary. Walking in obedience to Christ is usually ordinary. But it's right there in aisle nine in Walmart when you smile for someone and offer to help. It's in your home when you're making meals or saying prayers or doing the laundry. It's 
It's right in your workplaces. It's in that email that you send. It's, it's just in the ordinary. God takes what you think is ordinary and he shows up in ways only he can. So we see what happens because of Ruth's ordinary work in verse 19. It says this. If this were a movie, you guys, this is where the music would change. The next part of verse 19 says, So Ruth told her mother-in-law about the man in whose field she had worked. She said, The man I worked with today, his name is Boaz. Naomi responds in verse 20, May the Lord bless him. He is showing his kindness to us as well as to your dead husband. That man is one of our closest relatives, one of our family redeemers. This is huge. It's a turning point because Ruth and Naomi know what this term means. They're familiar with a family redeemer. A family redeemer means kinsman redeemer. And the Hebrew term for kinsman redeemer is goel. It means one who delivers or rescues or redeems a, a person or property. It literally means to buy back. And the responsibility for or of a kinsman redeemer belonged to the nearest relative. Leviticus chapter 25, verse 25 says, if one of your fellow Israelites becomes poor and sells some of their property, their nearest relative is to come and redeem what they have sold. In verse 48 and 49, one of their relatives may redeem them, an uncle or a cousin or a blood relative in their clan may redeem them, or if they prosper, they may redeem themselves. So, according to this, Boaz was a close relative and he could redeem them. He could rescue them. He could settle their debt, give them a new beginning, take them in and care for them. But just because Boaz could didn't mean he would. There were two other factors that went into whether or not someone would actually step in and be a kinsman redeemer. The next factor was that they had to actually be able to redeem. Boaz had to have the means to pay, the financial ability to pay for all their debt and then take them in and care for them. And Boaz also had to be willing to do it. He would have to look at Naomi with all of her debt, the fact that she's too old to marry, too old to have kids, she's got nothing but debt, and she, he'd have to look at Ruth with her awful reputation of being hated, and he'd have to look at them and, and, and decide that it, they're worth it, that he'd be willing to pay for them and take them as his own. You guys, right here in this story, Ruth and Naomi do not know what Boaz is going to do. It's obvious they're excited at the possibility that Boaz might redeem them, but they don't know if he will. And we have to see this because it's so important. How do they respond? Not knowing what Boaz is going to do, we see in verse 23, it says, So Ruth worked alongside the women in Boaz's fields and gathered grain with them until the end of the barley harvest. Then she continued working with them through the wheat harvest in early summer. And all the while, while she lived 
All the while, she lived with her mother-in-law. So for four months, Ruth and Naomi have no idea what's going to happen. We have the luxury of seeing what's to come in the next chapters. Try to just forget that right now. Ruth and Naomi have no idea. And so for four months, day after day after day after day, Ruth goes out into the field again, and she gleans and she gathers again, and she hauls it over to the threshing floor, and she beats the barley out of the stock, and she winnows all of the barley. She carries it back day after day after day after day after day. Ordinary work, and she had no idea what would come if Boaz would ever want to redeem them. And while there's so much unknown for them right here in the text, what is clear in the passage is that Ruth's ordinary obedience was in fact not at all ordinary because God reminded both of them who he is and thus who they are. News of Boaz is so exciting because Boaz is a picture of Christ as our kinsman redeemer. Remember, a redeemer has to be a relative. They have to share the same bloodline. John chapter 1 verse 14 says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory in the one and the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus left heaven and came down to earth and took on flesh. God knew that in order for Jesus to redeem all of mankind, Jesus would have to become part of mankind. But Jesus also needed to be able to redeem us. He had to have the the means, the resources to be able to redeem us. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, The Son is the radiance and only expression of the glory of our awesome God, reflecting God's Shekinah glory, the light being the brilliant light of the divine, and the exact representation and perfect imprint of his Father's essence, and upholding and maintaining and propelling all things, the entire physical and spiritual universe, by his powerful word, carrying the universe along to its predetermined goal, when he himself and no other had, by offering himself on the cross as a sacrifice for sin, accomplished purification from sins and established our freedom from guilt, he sat down, revealing his completed work at the right hand of the majesty on high, revealing his divine authority. First Peter chapter 1, verse 18 and 19 For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Only Jesus is able to redeem the world. Only Jesus is the perfect payment. Only he is the perfect sacrifice for our sin. But still, if you remember, A redeemer has to be willing to redeem. And this is where I think it gets a little tricky for us because we think 
could it really be that despite my, my history of receiving inconsistent love from people, my, my life of pain, my life of suffering, my, my life of disappointment, betrayal, maybe abandonment, could it really be that there's one person that actually knew life would look like that for me on this side of heaven and because of that decided to, to choose to show his great love for me? so that I could know that there's only one perfect love? John 3.16 says, For God so loved, so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Okay, but could there really be one person that despite all my failures, all of our failures, in all of our failures, knowing all of our failures, could there really be one that came and chose to die to pay for them, knowing all of it? Could it really be that one person said, I'll pay, I'll put their punishment on me? Really? Romans chapter five or six through eight says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Now, for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans chapter 3, verse 21 through 25. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago, we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned, everyone has sinned. We all fall short of, glorious, of God's glorious standards, yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. For God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. So yes, for you with the reputation, yes, Yes, for you who's never felt wanted or loved, for you who's felt blindsided, rejected, betrayed, forgotten, for you, he's willingly paid for you. And so we can rest in knowing amidst whatever circumstances we find ourselves that Jesus has paid for it. He's willingly paid. Through Jesus, God has ransomed you. He's paid in full for the penalty of death. And there's nothing, there's nothing you can do about it. And that's what gets us. This kind of love is not ordinary at all. I remember after coming back home the day I left uh, my kiddo, or left my husband with my kiddos, came back home and I said, I don't know, I don't know what to do, but I just, I'm not, I'm not okay. We ended up coming uh, to church 
and we actually sat over in this area here, and I heard a message similar to this, and I knew that I had a choice. I could either receive it and just actually accept that there, this is true and I can't do anything about that. I can either receive it or not. I had to really wrestle with the fact that this love is real, that he did in fact die for me, and that even though others in my life hadn't maybe loved me consistently, he has. That even though others had hurt me, he hadn't. That even though I was a sinner and I could never live up to this standard, he did. So I just pray that this morning, um, wherever you're at, that you would hear this message and, and maybe for the first time not only Maybe just wrap your mind around the fact that Jesus has died for you. Sorry, that Jesus has died, but also wrap your mind around the fact that Jesus has died for you. <laughs> that it's not only for everyone else, but it actually is for you. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you, Father. Thank you for giving us um, the opportunity to be together and just hear and be encouraged by the truth of who you are, what you've done. Father, I just sense uh, there are people here this morning who are in a place of hurt. And Father, maybe like Naomi, they're confusing this world's pain with who you are. God, for anyone in here who has lies that or barriers uh, preventing them from fully receiving this truth this morning, I just ask, Father, in your name, in the name of Jesus, that those would be removed. Any barrier, Father, that they would be gone. Father, we just present ourselves in response to this truth of who you are. We offer ourselves as sacrifices, Father, because it's all we can give to you. We open our hearts up fully to you and we just ask for you to have your way in our, in our lives, in our hearts. We surrender all to you, Lord. If there's anyone in the room um, or watching right now and you just feel in your heart that you want to commit, you want to receive this gift of forgiveness and grace and love or recommit your life to to Jesus, you can just pray this prayer silently along with me. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. Forgive me of all of my sins. Come be my Lord and Savior. I want to live for you. Holy Spirit, I invite you to transform me more into who you've created me to be. In Jesus' name, amen.